Good morning. It's a good time. Good to be together this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have been granted by God and His providential care and love for us to ensure that we have the opportunity to be together this Lord's Day. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Deuteronomy in our Old Testament. We're going to be looking at several passages in our Old Testament this morning, so I invite you to be taking them out and studying along with us. We have those who are visiting with us. We certainly are grateful that you're here. We're glad that you have chosen to come and worship God with us this morning. We hope that you're edified and encouraged as a result of our time together. In the book of Deuteronomy, contains several speeches of Moses that would offer some encouragement and, and admonishment, some things that the children of Israel needed to be sure that they did in preparing them to go into the promised land. That Moses is not going to be able to enter into the promised land, but he is trying to ensure this new generation of Israelites, they are going to be ready. And he wants them to follow his advice and the admonishment that he is offering throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 19 and in verse 14, we get this admonishment that we just heard in our reading. And it may seem as something that is very uh, mundane, very basic, something that really has no meaning to us today here in the United States of America, in the state of Kansas. But he says in verse 14, You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the, in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. You continue on in the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses offers this admonishment yet again in chapter 27. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 and in verse 17, he says on this occasion, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. That Moses has something very particular here in mind, obviously, that as he is trying to encourage the children of Israel and in going into the promised land, not to mess with one another's territory. Respect the boundary markers that are there. And don't move them. Because these are going to be a very vivid reminder of what God has done. That He has given you this land. And so you need to remember that. You need to honor it and you need to respect it and you don't need to move it. And I think you see this play out in several different ways throughout the rest of the Old Testament. That might seem a bit strange to us. You turn to the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 22, in Proverbs, the 22nd chapter, and in verse 28, Solomon says, Do not move the ancient, ancient boundary which your fathers have set. In the very next chapter, in chapter 23 and in verse 10, do not move the ancient boundary or go into the fields of the fatherless. You need to respect the boundaries that have been put in place. You think about how we might do that even in our own lifestyle. You might take and you might build a fence. You might set those boundary markers, right? 
It's not a guarantee that it's going to be on the property line, but it's certainly a place where you're saying don't come in or you're trying to keep something from going out, whether it be livestock or whatever it might be. You have boundary markers. You have a post that might be there. Also in the prophets, in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, in Jeremiah the 31st chapter, and in verse 21, notice here what Jeremiah says. He says, set up for yourself road marks, place for yourself guideposts, direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went, return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. The benefit of these landmarks, these road marks, these guideposts, the prophets draw on this idea of not moving and respecting and honoring these landmarks. Not to move them. Not to change them. I think the basic lesson behind these instructions to the children of Israel was that this was a very vivid reminder of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises. All the way back to the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that when God made that promise to Abraham and to his descendants that He would give them this land of promise. This was going to be a reminder that Israel had not earned this territory or this allotment. This was a gracious gift that had been given to them by the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth. And because of that, He expected the children of Israel to appreciate that inheritance, the gift, the promises that He had provided for them. And Israel was to be unmoved and to never forget what God had done. And while that might have had a very particular and a very specific kind of uh, application for the children of Israel in a way that it doesn't for us today, I think it still, as a principle, applies. There are some things that God has given us that we dare not mess with that we never should adjust or change or move. That we need to respect the ancient landmarks that have been given to us by God, that have been provided and revealed to us in the Scriptures and the Word of God. Some things that we need to remain steadfast and sure, that we cannot allow to change us, no matter how much change seems like it's the right answer. Because there are going to be things that we cannot change. There are going to be some things that we have to respect even when the winds of change come. When people try to push certain agendas and certain ideas, we have to remain steadfast and faithful to the God of heaven. We have to remain true to what He has revealed to us. This morning we're going to look at three things and three areas I think that are these ancient landmarks that we cannot mess with. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list. If it was exhaustive, I think we might be here till midnight. And I don't think you want that. But we are going to look at these three things. And we're going to consider them and how we need to be true to them. And how they affect us and our faith and our service and our obedience to God. And the first thing that I want us to think about is really the deity of Christ and how that is something that is so fundamental and 
foundational to our faith. In Matthew chapter 10, in Matthew the 10th chapter, in Matthew the 10th chapter, and in verse 32, notice here what Jesus says about those who would be his disciples, those who are following him. He says in verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I think this is a landmark, a post in the ground, if you will, that we need to acknowledge and that we cannot neglect and we cannot remove because of the danger of removing such of a landmark if you will. That Jesus, He says that if you confess Me and you profess that faith, then I will profess you in your name before My Father. But if you do not, then I am going to deny you before God. This is so fundamental and foundational. The identity of who Jesus is is so critical for our faith and our salvation. Now, sometimes we forget to talk about such. We forget to talk about who Jesus is. And He was a man. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, in Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus was a man. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 15, as the Hebrew writer describes Jesus as our great high priest, he says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was a man. He suffered temptation like we do. Yet He was without sin. If you go back a little earlier in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, we learn in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9 that Jesus not only suffered temptation, But he also suffered death like a man. In Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9, But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He experienced the suffering of death, an experience that we all will face. And while Jesus experienced temptation like we do, He was experienced death like we do. He was a man. He was human like we all are. Nevertheless, there was something unique about Him in a way that you and I are not. Jesus was God in the flesh. That's something that the New Testament Scriptures are very clear about and affirming. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, as the Apostle John opens this account of the Gospel, of the life of Christ, he begins with the very fact that Jesus was the divine Son of God. In John, the first chapter, and in verse 1, He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
I want you to just notice here, while he has not said Jesus or anything of that nature yet, I want you to just notice what he is saying very clearly about the Word, right? That the Word was with God and the Word was God. He makes those two statements very plain in verse 1. And that he was in the beginning with God, that he was eternal in nature. And then he says that everything that has come into being, that everything that you can see and touch, it has been created through the Word, verse 3. That nothing that has come into being apart from Him. And then you get to see that he is talking about not just this idea of, of some wisdom or some ideal that he's speaking of. He's talking in personification. He's talking about a person, a man. Because he says in verse 3, he was, or verse 2, he was in the beginning. Or verse 3, all things came into being through him. You skip on down to verse 14. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see that this is speaking about the person of Jesus Christ in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus was not just a man, he was also God. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, notice the birth account of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, notice the name that was given to Jesus in fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall name his and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The person and the identity of Jesus is a staple in our faith and our salvation. The Hebrew writer affirms the deity of Christ. In a very clear way. It's a pretty unique way in what he does. In Hebrews chapter 1, the Hebrew writer does this throughout the book of Hebrews where he'll take these Old Testament prophecies and statements like from the Psalms and things like that. And then what he will do is that he will sort of put those words inspired by God and he will sort of place them, if you will, in the mouth or the speech of someone else. And he will do that in a way that's pretty unique throughout the, the New Testament. But he does this in, in, particularly in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5. And he's putting these statements from the Old Testament as if God, the Father, is speaking them. Okay? So God is speaking these words. And in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So you see what he's saying, that he's talking about the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? You know, he's saying he obviously has a connection with the Father. 
in a very unique way, not in a way that was unlike the angels. In verse 6, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, And let all the angels of God worship Him. And of the angels, He says, Who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom where God is looking at His Son and He calls Him God there in verse 8. He's saying that the the Son of God is God. Jesus is God. And we see that. Jesus was proven and definitively shown to be the Son of God through His resurrection from the dead. That's why the resurrection of Christ is so critical. To our faith. So much so that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about anyone that would deny the idea of resurrection from the dead. That that would lead logically to a, re- to a denial of the resurrection of Jesus. And he says if that's the case, then our faith is in vain. Our salvation is jeopardized. Everything that we say that we have in a hope, it's gone. It's poof. It's vanished. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. He says in verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The deity and the resurrection of Christ, they go hand in hand. That when we confess the words that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who died and was raised on the third day, that is no small confession. That's the very foundation of our faith and our salvation and our hope of eternal life. The deity of Christ is a landmark that ought not to be touched, that we cannot dare move. The second thing that we need to consider as an ancient landmark that we cannot move is the idea of biblical authority. Turn with me to the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 21. In 1 Kings chapter 21, perhaps you'll remember this occasion. Might have been a while for some of us. Maybe the last time we remember this story was in a Bible class when we were children. But in 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab is king of Israel. He's a very wicked king. You remember him and Jezebel, I'm sure. And Ahab, he comes across this vineyard of Naboth. 
And he wants this vineyard for himself. In 1 Kings chapter 21 and in verse 1 it says, Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard that in, it, in its place, if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Maybe you've always kind of thought, like I did for so long, that Naboth, he just had this piece of ground, this vineyard that was his family inheritance, and it was just passed down from generation to generation, and he just did not want to part with it, that he could not dare part with it out of mere sentimentality. You all probably have something that you cherish that was passed down of yours, of a, someone from a previous generation that you have received it and you're not going to dare let it go. I've got a couple of Bibles uh, from great grandparents and grandparents that I have that I have, they're, they're just never going to be leaving my possession. They're just going to be mine and they're never going to be for sale. They wouldn't mean anything to you anyway. Right? But a vineyard, that's something valuable. That has some uh, financial, con- something that he could receive some money for this. But doesn't it strike you as odd that he would turn it down and he said, The Lord has forbidden me from doing this? That Naboth had an appreciation, I think, for what you have read already in the book of Deuteronomy. Don't remove the ancient landmarks. That These are the boundary markers. These are the things that remind you of the inheritance that God has provided you with. Not something that your family has just passed down. I think that is exactly why Naboth was sadly willing to... Uh, sad because of what happened here that he was willing to lay down his life, that he was willing to die for this. Because he understood something, that whenever God says something, you don't change it. You don't mess with it. And he has no business going outside of the boundaries of what God has revealed and what God has said. That's an important lesson for us. When it comes to God's Word as it is revealed to us in the Word of God, in the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul said that all Scripture is inspired or it's God-breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We need to, when we open our Bibles, we need to understand that this is God's message to us. This is God's Word that He has breathed out, that He has communicated. To be able to speak, it takes breath, doesn't it? It takes a windpipe. It takes breath and air. That it is God breathed. It is, it is His communication to us. 
that when we open up God's Word, and it's going to communicate ideas to us that we need to respect and we need to be willing to say, I may not understand it, I may not always agree with it, it may not be what I want to do, but I'm going to submit to what God's Word says. When it comes to questions about salvation, especially so prominent in the book of Acts, we see the pattern in Scripture that someone must believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They must repent of their sins. They need to confess their faith in Christ. They must be baptized. We see that repeated over and over again throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, in that first Pentecost sermon that Peter preached, he said, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, in Acts the 8th chapter, and in verse 36, when Philip is preaching Jesus to the eunuch there, he says, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When it comes to questions about salvation, whenever we might hear someone on television or on the radio say, all you need to do is preach or believe in Jesus and say the sinner's prayer. What are we going to do? What are we going to look at? Are we going to trust what they say? Or are we going to trust what the Bible says? We need to respect God's Word and respect the authority of the Scriptures. When it comes to questions about the work of the church, oversight of elders, all those things, there's a plan, there's a pattern that has been revealed to us. And we need to respect and we need to appeal to the Bible for our authority for everything that we do in the Lord's church. We need to place a post, a landmark there with biblical authority. Even whenever someone might begin to push back against biblical authority. Whenever people say, oh, it's unimportant. Establishing biblical authority in the ways of direct commands or necessary inferences or approved examples. And that's just kind of Church of Christ talk is what someone might say. Or, and it was kind of a reverse engineered sort of way of getting to some conclusions that we wanted to get to. That's just communication, folks. It's just communication. It's just how we talk. It's how we talk. Communicate with one another. If you can show me a way and add to that list of how you might communicate, I'll be glad to, to give you audience and, and to change what I say. 
But if you think of a way that we can communicate with that doesn't involve a direct statement in some way, or an approved example, or a necessary inference, you you be my guest. God's word it's authoritative, it's binding. What God has said and communicated to us, we need to respect that even when we may disagree with it at times. Or when we may not completely understand why. We need to give our submission and our obedience to Him and His Word. And then another landmark that we must not move is true worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, Jesus was with a Samaritan woman at a well. And they started talking about water and then it led to a discussion about worship. And what is true worship? The right place and the proper time to worship. And in John chapter 4 and verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We must worship, as Jesus says, in spirit and truth. And God is spirit. That is that we worship in the way that God wants us to worship. We don't change how we worship in a way that would suit us or be pleasing to us. We worship in a way that would be pleasing to God. I remember a discussion that I had, I was probably 7th, 8th grade, somewhere in that, in that age. Probably should have known I was going to be a preacher at this point, but I didn't. I was fighting against it at that point in my life. I was like, I'm never going to be a preacher. Yeah, shows you what happens when you say never. But a friend of mine, we were talking, and we were just playing basketball and shooting hoops, and we were talking about Bible stuff, go figure. And we were talking about worship, and he was asking me why we don't use instruments in worship in the Church of Christ, and I was explaining it to him. And he said, well, I just don't think that's at all good reasoning he said because i think if i worship god if i want to worship god then god has to accept my worship in whatever way i want to worship him he has to and he's obligated to accept it my question is if i could go back to that time i'd ask him who's god then because it sounds like you're making yourself a little bit more important in that scenario We don't worship in a way that would bring satisfaction and pleasure to us. We worship in a way that we want to demonstrate our honor and our respect for the one that we are worshiping. 
That means we have to worship in the way that God has prescribed for us to worship. And so we partake of the Lord's Supper each and every first day of the week. As we see in the examples in the, Old, in the New Testament, beginning on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when they broke bread, that was the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20 and in verse 7, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, about 25, 30 years later, it says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. And you see that 25, 30 years later, they're still worshiping on the first day of the week, and guess what? They're breaking bread, they're partaking of the Lord's Supper, of the memorial feast, of remembering Jesus and His sacrifice. That's an ancient landmark that we cannot move, that we dare not change. We sing without the use of musical instruments because God has commanded us to sing. In Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 19, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Also in Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He says to sing. He doesn't say sing and play. He doesn't say use a musical instrument to accompany that. Trust me, I love... I love instrumental music. I, I was in band and I was a music major in college for a few years. That, but there was something that was interesting there that whenever I was a music major, I had to specify what kind of music major I was. I had to specify if I was going to be an instrumental music major or a vocal music major. Both are two forms of music. And what God has done in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 and Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, He has specified the kind of music that He wants in worship. He wants us to sing vocal music. We can want to change that as much as we want. Are we going to have the kind of spirit though that Naboth had where he says, the Lord forbid that I do that. Or are we going to change and move the ancient landmark to suit our desire and our pleasure and what we want? I think we know what we must do. The ancient landmark is there. And it has been set for us. And we cannot change it. Turn with me to the book of Job. As we draw our lesson to a close this morning, in the book of Job, Job is experiencing all sorts of things in his life at this point, all sorts of pain and calamity, sickness and sorrow. But there's something that 
strikes you as interesting, especially in light of the discussion of ancient landmarks. Job says in Job 24 and verse 2, some remove the landmarks. They seize and devour flocks. Job lamented that some would move and remove the ancient landmarks to turn to justice, injustice, and evil. He considered this a great travesty. Something that he would mourn and weep. People would take what did not belong to them. They would remove the boundary markers. In the book of Hosea, in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 10, Hosea, a prophet to Israel, said, The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. A strong warning for any who would dare change and move or remove what God had set in place. God's wrath and punishment would be dealt out against those who are treacherous and remove the ancient landmarks. Not the kind of example that we want to follow. But let us be faithful, like Naboth, and not remove the ancient landmarks of our faith. Let us remain true, steadfast, and faithful to some of the boundary markers that God has put in place. Let's keep the ancient landmark that God has set in place in all things, but especially this morning, as it might relate to your life and to your salvation. Let's not move the ancient landmark of salvation. God in His grace and in His love, He offers you eternal life. Through Jesus, His Son, who came and died for you. And by God's grace, in the demonstration of faith and obedience to the Gospel, particularly in your repentance and confession of faith and in baptism, your sins can be washed away you can become a child of God. White as snow. Clean, pure, and holy. God offers you that gift of salvation this morning. He wants you to become His child. And if you have never done that, we give you an opportunity this morning to come confessing your faith in Christ, to be baptized in water. But maybe it is that you have made that commitment to following Christ, but you've moved some of those landmarks. You've not been living faithfully for Christ. Maybe you have turned back to the world and to sin. Would you not come back this morning? God pleads with you. He wants you to come to Him.
If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?